This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with Director of Football at the Canadian Premier League, Oliver Gage. He discusses the inception of the league and the plans for it moving forward, as well as the unique structure to ensure player progression from youth football into the senior game. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Perfect. So, Oliver, really appreciate you spending a bit of time with us today. How are things your end? All okay? Yeah, everything's great. My end. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Um, just started raining here in Toronto. And uh, as I told you before we hit the recording, uh, I feel like the Canadian winter's uh, coming a bit faster than I'm ready for. But yeah, everything's great. Thank you. Go and get all your ski outfits on to keep yourself warm because it, it will get lively. So, um, obviously, we've been trying to get our diaries together to do this, but I'm really glad that we've, we've been able to do that eventually. For people that maybe don't know you, don't know um, your role, etc., you just want to explain what you currently do, what that entails, and, yeah, kind of a whistle-stop tour, if you like. Yeah, sure. Um, so, my role is the I'm the director of football for the Canadian Premier League. Um, for those who don't know who we are or what we are, we're the youngest league in the world, four years old now. Um, launched in 2019 um, with a view to kind of building the bridge between good young Canadian players and the professional game. Because for a very long time in this country, there's not really been much for them, barring the three MLS teams. Um yeah, I think Soconomics even named Canada as the, the most underperforming country in the world on the national stage at one point, given infrastructure and finance and, and all the rest of it. So it's been a huge need for the league here for a long time. And it's great to be a part of the project. Um, my role as a director of football, broadly speaking, is basically to work with the teams and improve the level of play. So that ties into recruitment analysis processes, um, training methodology. Uh, I advise ownership groups on certain aspects of the game while also working with the coaching staffs on a week-to-week basis. So it's uh, it's multifaceted. Um, my phone is always going off, usually for, for good reasons, but sometimes I have a few sleepless nights too. Um, but it's really interesting, you know, uh, think of a sporting director or a director of football working for eight clubs simultaneously, and, and that's my life. Perfect. And I think that gives people a really good insight as to why I wanted you on, because I think that you probably provide quite a unique insight into multiple ways of working. Um, I guess if we go back to the start of how this inception happened, um, how do you go around creating a league? What does that actually look like? What do you need to have in place? What did the clubs need to have in place? Yeah. What did that look like from this inception? Yeah, I think I think probably the most unique challenge here. So you've you've got um, eight teams who hired eight head coaches who hired eight staffs with them. Um, but I think because we we have an MLS type model with a salary cap, one of the most interesting things that probably happened in the league's inception was how the, the squads were built, the rosters were built. So if you imagine eight teams uh, approaching somewhere around 250 different players all at the same time, kind of... Uh, 
pitching their project and trying to gauge valuations and stuff like that. Um, there was this really kind of unique period where there was a, a pool of players available to the clubs in Canada that were the best kind of semi-pro, should be professional players, but nowhere to play. And eight clubs simultaneously, all chasing the same player pool. So at the league office, we have a, a football department, which is a little bit like the Premier League's football department, I would say, you know, where we actually work with clubs to to push the boundaries a little bit. So within that, we have a recruitment department. Um, so building that kind of recommended player pool, recommended player valuations, working with clubs on, I need a left back in this style that gets forward, that can do this, can do that, who's available, who's out there. I think that was something that was a pretty incredible time in my career. And also like, you know, if there was a fly on the wall documentary, um, something that would have been pretty compelling, you know, like trying to compile this list of who should be in this league, how much are they worth, you know, and, and where are they playing and, and what are they doing? So, uh, yeah, really interesting. And so I guess looking around that, it's quite an interesting piece. What you said there was fit in certain styles. Because again, we'll come on to this later on, but having a team that maybe plays like Stoke and goes a lot more direct might need a particular type of left back compared to one that wants, you know, a three at the back with wing backs, etc. So did they come to you wanting that information or did you kind of have a plethora of information and go, right, here's all the data or this is the information we've got, do with it as you will? So... Um... It was a little bit of a flexible approach, like a little bit of both. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you've seen in your research, we work with uh, 21st Group, 21st Club, they, they used to be called quite heavily. And something, something one of those guys said to me one time was pretty compelling. And it was, no matter what style of play you have, if Lionel Messi's available, you would take him on any team in the world, right? Even Stoke would, you know, old old fashioned Stoke under Pulis would have taken Lionel Messi. Right. So there's a certain level at which any player, if they're good enough, is appropriate for any team. And where the really interesting stuff happens is like at what what is that tipping point where the player isn't good enough anymore to be on any team, you know? So we compiled a list of the best Canadian players out there and available. Uh and we had, you know, a rough ranking system of who we thought were better in each position and, and whatever else. And the very best ones you could say to every team in the league, basically, like, this is a great left back, this is a great right back, you should be looking at them. But there was a certain point definitely where players were okay in a certain style, but they probably weren't going to be okay in another style. And that's where the subjectivity kind of comes in and you, you have to build those relationships with the coaching staffs, try and get a good idea of, of how they want to play and what they want to do. And then start recommending kind of the secondary players almost, you know, like, not the stars of the league, but the the ones that were going to start on some teams. They're the ones where you have to take a little bit of uh, advice from the coach about how they want to play. And, you know, even that in itself was very interesting to see which coaches didn't really want to show their hand to the league office and didn't really trust us at the moment, you know, because we hadn't built them personal relationships yet and, and which ones were really open and, and willing to work with us. So, yeah, really, really challenging in a good way, and I don't mean challenging like I wasn't enjoying it, but a really challenging time about how to kind of draw this information out of coaches, make them feel safe, you know, let them know how I was going to help and how I wouldn't share their information with, with other people. So, yeah, really interesting challenge and project. 
And what was the dialogue with the players in that space? So obviously some of them, as you said, might have loads of teams going after them. Others might have one or two selects. Like what was the conversation with them? What were they aware of? What information did they have? Again, uh, I would say a two-pronged approach where we would speak to some players, get an idea of what they were looking for financially, uh, whether or not there were certain markets that they, I, I hate to use club locations as markets, I sound very corporate saying that, whether there was certain cities or places in the country that they did or didn't really want to go to. Um, you know, so we would build that into some reporting and some of the more casual conversations we had with coaches, which is like, hey, you know, player X is available over here, probably going to cost you 40, 50, 60 grand, whatever. But to be honest with you, he really, I don't think he's that keen on coming out to Calgary or Vancouver or, you know, Halifax or wherever. But if you're an Ontario team, he doesn't really want to go too far from home. You might be able to grab him for a little bit less. So th those were some really interesting conversations. And on the flip side, you know, there was a lot of coaches hired that have been youth national team coaches before. Really good, you know, the best of the best in terms of like the semi-pro game here and stuff like that. And they had, you know, they had some pre-existing relationships with players that, you know, a lot of guys were signed without our involvement too. So I always say that we were... We were the ninth recruitment department in the league. You know, you've got your eight clubs and then the league office is the ninth. You know, so we didn't replace anyone. We were just adding to it, if anything. And you mentioned locations there. Where are the locations of the eight teams? So we have, I'll start from the East Coast and go West, I guess. So we've got Halifax on the East Coast. Then as you head inland, we've got uh, Ottawa. Uh, we've got York, in, which is on the outskirts of Toronto and Hamilton, which is just south of Toronto. Then as you move across the country, we've got sort of in the middle, we've got Winnipeg, who are called Valor, uh, a team in Calgary and a team in Edmonton. And then we have one out on the West Coast in Vancouver, on, on Pacific Island, on the island outside of Vancouver. And was there like strategic decisions on where they were based? Or was that where, you know, owners were like, oh, no, I'm based here. I'd like my team to be here. Yeah, from, from what I believe, it was mostly local ownership groups. I was hired by the league when the eight teams, well, in f at first it was seven, actually. We expanded to eight after the first year. But when the when the seven teams were in place uh, already, um, but what I know of all the ownership groups is they're all owned by people in those cities for the most part. So I, I definitely think it was a case of we have... Uh, owner X in City Y who wants to build a team, so that's where it's going to be. Um, so yeah, I guess looking at you mentioned the the coaching staff wise, um, what experiences you've got from coaches? Because imagine if you've got fresh ownership groups, some might have contacts, some might not. What I guess experience wise, what's that look like predominantly? Is there any particular coaches that's broken the norm, and why do you think that is? Um. So we have a really um, diverse mix of coaches, I would say, in the league. And we did in year one, you know, so um, it ranged from kind of really, really good high level youth coaches that were prominent figures in their city that were kind of the obvious choice if you were going to go with somebody local. Um, and then on the flip side, you know, you have a former international head coach who hadn't been in the club game I think ever in his career um, that got given his first ever club job. Um, so there was, there was a really kind of very different mix of 
of coaching staffs in the league. Um, you know, for the most part, two of our two of our more successful clubs in the in the league's history have been led by uh, coaches who kind of came from a very prominent youth academy. Um, have kind of used that pipeline to build the base of their team and then started promoting from within, you know, over the years as well. Um, so I definitely think there's been uh, some advantages in in kind of having that pipeline already set up as one of the coaches in this league. But that's not been a luxury that every team's been able to have, you know, for for various reasons. Some didn't really have that youth set up in their cities. Uh, for some cities, they just weren't really the, the candidates there that you would think. Um, yeah, it's been, again, uh, it's been a really strange mix of a little bit of everything and not necessarily one size fits all solution for, for each club. And philosophically, was there any criteria that was needed for the coaches or was it purely kind of let the ownership groups go what they want without so much input feeding you guys? Uh, yeah, I think it was, um, I, I'm trying to think back, but I, I don't believe there was even any head coaching vacancies by the time I got hired. So I was hired, the league was going to kick off in April, 2019. I was hired at the back end of 2018. And if I remember correctly, I, I don't think there was a vacancy by the time I got in. I think all the coaches were already hired. So certainly it wasn't a process that I was involved in. Um, so I couldn't, I couldn't really speak too much to that, but I, I do get the impression that, you know, owners took advice from prominent football figures in their local community, you know, maybe spoke to some people at the league office that compiled like a short list of who should be looked at here. But uh, I couldn't say, to be honest with you. And then looking at it now, I guess, from a development point of view for you guys as as a league, where are you at currently? And where do you want, I guess, where's the gold standard of where where you want it to be moving forward? Yeah, so uh, currently, uh, just talking kind of subjectively, uh, we're ahead of where we thought we were going to be at this stage, if I'm honest, especially when you take COVID into consideration. Uh, you know, for any league that launches and after their first season gets hit by this like unbelievable world pandemic, uh, I think everyone just had survival as kind of a barometer of success here. Um, and we've done more than that, you know, we've thrived. I think if you look at certain milestones um, that we kind of had up on the wall heading into our first season, you know, there were things like uh, win our first international game against, you know, competition on the continent. Uh, first time we sell a player, first time we beat an MLS team in the, in the Canadian Championship, which is like uh, the Canadian FA Cup, um, you know, all of these things. And you know, I, I think we hit almost every single milestone in the first year. It was pretty incredible. And that is uh, that is truly down to the work from the, first of all, the coaching staffs that were in place. And second, the, the hugely undervalued Canadian player pool. Uh, it's a credit to them. I think there's a little bit of validation there from everybody that this league was needed and the quality was there, but the opportunity wasn't. Uh, so it's great to be a part of that, even if, if I'm honest, I think the impact my department and I had in, in year one wasn't, wasn't huge compared to what we're doing now. Um, so that was great. And then I think two kind of major milestones we're looking at at the moment is, you know, to be the, one of the top three leagues in the CONCACAF region. So you obviously have, um, Liga MX in Mexico and the MLS are the two, two bigger ones. 
then you've got you know costa rica panama honduras you know jamaica some of these regions that are kind of like tier two um our, our objective right now is to kind of break into that top three like and be in the conversation with with mexico and, and the usa and when you look at like we mentioned before infrastructure opportunity finance everything that's in canada we're very lucky in that we we benefit from some of that stuff that some of those countries don't so i think over a long period of time, if we get things right here, it's inevitable that we will kind of join that conversation. Um, and then, you know, the second milestone is the 2026 World Cup. It's coming to Canada, it's coming to the US and Mexico. Um, we've kind of said that this is very much the platform for young players to go on and, and move on to other places at the moment. There'll definitely be a time when this league keeps its best players, but for now, we're a league that needs to get rid of them in the best possible way um so we've kind of highlighted that it would be an amazing achievement if like 50 percent of the canadian squad that takes that you know that i was going to say gets on the plane but they might not get on a plane if they're already in canada 50 percent of that squad will have played a game in our league you know hopefully started their career in our league uh, is our target and i guess how do you measure success you you mentioned there around the um being the third biggest what like qualitative or quantitative measures have you got to say yeah we have achieved that goal yeah so obviously i only work in the football department i'm sure social media and marketing and commercial will have their benchmarks and kpis and stuff like that that they want to they want to look at but for me um there's two ways of of really gauging success and that's one is uh is more subjective but um it's results based you know how do we do against mls how do we do when we play on the continent against foreign competition um and number two you can get a bit more technical you know you start looking at data so you have elo rankings and things like that where you can weight the strength of opposition see how many goals we win or lose by in certain games and and come up with almost like a rating system uh, across the world for all these different leagues and then you've got the of course the the continental coefficients based on results like where your teams are seeded in, in continental competitions uh, based on historical results so they're some pretty good barometers of success i guess and looking at the pipeline you've obviously mentioned that quite a lot in terms of one the validation that there is good players in canada that you guys are obviously giving opportunities to but also i guess being able to constant constantly produce those players and Hopefully, as you said, give them opportunities elsewhere and eventually keep on to them. How do you go around making sure that infrastructure in terms of academy systems or grassroots systems in a place where that's going to be continu uh, continuously sustainable? Uh, yeah, this is, again, probably one of the most unique aspects of our league and the setup we have. And one of the reasons that really kind of perked my interest when this, this opportunity came up was... Um, None of our clubs have got a traditional academy. Like nobody has a traditional academy model where players show up and play for free or whatever, and, and you know it's a cost on the club. Um, some of them have got partner youth clubs, which is a typical North American pay-to-play model for the most part. But what we actually saw was a huge opportunity in what we call League One, um, which is essentially the second division, the division below us. Um, which is semi-professional. 
across the country and we actually bought league one ontario which is the the kind of uh, the largest footballing province in the country and we're going to expand that into quebec and british columbia and cover probably 80 percent of the canadian football like player base in those three provinces um and own league one competition across the country so instead of eight clubs having eight academies we're actually going to have eight clubs having 80 academies across the country and the idea is you have a league in every province that's like a high performance semi-pro league and our teams kind of cherry pick the best players out of that versus a traditional like cost center in an academy and how would they do that in terms of cherry picking like when would yeah well what would the be the most yeah sorry what would be the mode for them to be able to cherry pick those players when they thought the time was right um so the the mode would basically be that they're all free agents and they can sign any time so if you take so we believe you know we do work with a lot of data companies and stuff like that we believe we're somewhere around league two in england in terms of infrastructure quality of play stuff like that so if you remove the three four leagues above league two so remove the premier league championship league one and that's the pyramid you have right now so you've got for the most part one full-time professional league and then underneath it semi-professional competition if league two was the top two tier in england but there was this huge kind of uh pyramid below of semi-pro competition the bigger of any team in League Two could go and pick the best player from the conference or, you know, the Isman League or Ryman League or whatever it's called. I don't even know. I've been out of England so long. But essentially, you've got this huge pool of clubs and competition going on below you where everyone's a semi-pro. Uh, so at any point, you can kind of dip in and offer them a contract and then it's on them to, to take it. And then obviously there's some training compensation issues there and things like that. But generally speaking, you've got, 80 90 100 semi-pro clubs to to choose the best players from if they want to join you and looking at it from a i guess pyramid point of view does that limit then the teams that are able to go into that top league yeah so it's um just like the mls it's uh for now it's a closed loop system where the you know the team that finishes bottom doesn't get relegated um you know, teams that finish top of the the secondary leagues don't get promoted. Uh, it's, you know, it's been mentioned a number of times that promotion relegation here is is on the radar and it's something that everyone's looking into and how it might work. Uh, very complicated North American specific problem, uh, but it's certainly on everyone's radar and it's been mentioned in the past that the league's open to it if we can get it figured out. You know, that's a... That's something that's way above my pay grade at the moment, though. Uh, it's uh, a huge kind of ownership level decision. It's it's not necessarily one that's going to be driven by the football department. Well, yeah, I think again, as you mentioned there, with the with the ownership, it is only them protecting assets to a certain degree. And if you, you know, if you look at certain clubs that in in England that get relegated and then you know get fleeced for all their assets, you look at Sunderland recently. Whereas at least if you're able to stay in there, you also always got a level of protection, and it does allow you to reboot culturally and stuff if you if you need to. Or the performances they talk about that tank in to then hopefully get better access to players. Yeah, and if you look at the mission of this league at the moment, which is to develop young Canadians, um, 
I think they're the ones that are going to suffer if relegation comes into play at the moment. You know, as soon as you start mentioning relegation, then everybody at the first opportunity wants to bring in the 32-year-old veteran, you know, the 29-year-old, whatever. Um, and I get it. And there's a place for those guys in the league. But this league was born out of frustration and a lack of opportunities for young Canadians predominantly. So to bring in promotion relegation too early from a footballing aspect only would be would be tough to to carry on doing the things that we're doing, which is playing young players and giving them opportunity and selling your best assets, you know, and giving them a chance to play in Europe. You know, um, it would be really, really tough for one of our clubs, Pacific FC, just sold, you know, their best player, like their star striker to a team in Norway. Um, they're not going to get relegated this year, even if they do. But, you know, I don't think things like that are going to be happening as often if relegation's on the cards. And I don't think we're there yet from a footballing point of view. No, that makes complete sense. And I guess looking from a structural point of view internally, does that then mean that the clubs will have more weight maybe in the player insights recruitment department than coaching? Because obviously if you haven't got an academy system that you're trying to support in terms of coaches, what you probably are trying to do is get yourself to all these different games and younger kids so you can then find the best ones that might fit your system. Yeah, and I think that's that's almost what we're encouraging is, um, you know, other than the, the very, very top end of football, where the players you produce in academies are sold for millions, you know, very, very few academies in the world run a profit. When you look at the investment in staffing and infrastructure and all the rest of it, versus what you get out of it in terms of comparable players. Um, it's a very, very tough business case to make. So again, just to mention, you know, a League Two club or a, a conference club or whatever, how many of them are investing less money, you know, in, in player development than they're receiving in transfer fees? Like very, very few. And the reality is the majority of the players that they do sign to first team contracts come from within the league as free agents. So. That's essentially what we have here in the, the paradigm we have here, where the cost of developing a CPL level player is way above the value of that CPL level player. And the youth clubs have done a great job in the 30 years that this league's been absent. So why would we go and rock the boat on that one? Yeah, I think the Brentford model springs to mind straight away when you're saying that, where they made the decision, you know, kind of to get rid of the academy and then focus, I think, 16s up or 18s up and put a lot more emphasis and money in that space which seemed to well seems to have given rewards at the back end of it at the moment i guess yeah and that's and it's i think a lot of people get caught up in the cost savings aspect of it which i i understand there's there's obviously a huge cost savings aspect of that but i think when they talk about that people ignore what you're actually doing which is encouraging the good youth clubs that have been developing players to carry on doing so and helping them to do it so instead of competing for their best players and launching this you know academy with a pro pathway and you know having a recruitment uh, advantage that they just can't compete with it's about embracing and championing the the best player developers in the region and building partnerships with them and, and boosting the whole football industry in your region versus just one club, one youth team, let's compete. I, I just don't think we're there yet as a nation, you know, and arguably if you could rewrite the whole thing again in, in England and Europe, that might be the best way to do it across the pyramid, barring the top 15, 20 academies in the UK. Yeah, no, it's definitely an interesting concept. I think that, as you said, it's, um, I think 
it's a beast at the minute in terms of how it's all set up. But it'd be interesting to see, you know, those people that had the inception of the EPPP and what that looked like. What learnings did they have or have they had when they go, actually, you know what, and reflection, we wouldn't have gone down that route or we'd go down this route. Yeah, I mean, I, I think not to give too many details away, but I've been on calls with at least five other nations and leagues. Uh, one of them being like a top five league in the world, like one of the big, big ones about how we do this and why we do it and how it works, having a recruitment department in the league that services the clubs and stuff. So I think the tide's turning a little bit on that and people are starting to take notice of how it could be done differently. So I guess my next question at the back of this is how do you ensure, I guess, quality control of the, the coach and staff or the, the teams that are currently producing those players how do you ensure they're doing it, you know, in the right way? Obviously, you mentioned the kind of a pay-to-play model, which I think is commonplace, obviously, in Canada and States. And from experiences of being invo- involved and seeing some of those, some are very, very good. Others, as you'd expect, maybe not so good. But how do you guys manage that in terms of making sure the experiences that the players are getting on their development pathway is hopefully going to set them up well for the, when they make that jump to the top end? Yeah, so like I mentioned, we uh, we bought League One Ontario and we, we own League One competition across the country now. So a part of that is obviously upskilling and working with them to provide a better environment for player development. So for example, uh, a couple of years ago, my background is in you know analysis and um, implementation of kind of objective decision-making in clubs and methodology. Um, I put on like a, an education day for all the clubs in, in League One to learn how we did like a pre and post game process in MLS at Houston, how that ties into player development, how to kind of tie video and objective measures into IDPs and stuff like that. So there's definitely an aspect of if this is the well that we're going to be drawing from, then we've got a responsibility to to help those guys with education and, and infrastructure. You know, we. We provide them all with a, a platform that's a bit like Scout, uh, where they can view all the games, there's data, all the games are coded. So in theory, they can be doing pre-game analysis and post-game reports with their players. So giving tools to coaches to produce better players is obviously the way that we think we're going we're gonna to boost the level of player that enters this league eventually. And in terms of educational pieces or qualifications, what does that look like? Because obviously you mentioned there kind of the pre and post work or using analysis, but obviously levels of it will be around practice design or, you know, types of learning skills, learning formation. So what does that look like from a practical perspective? Yeah, so to to be a head coach in League One Ontario, uh, I believe you have to have a Canadian A licence. You know, to be a head coach in our league, you have to have an A license and working towards your pro. So it's a standards-based league, a lot, you know, much like a lot would be where you can't just kind of show up and be, you know, the head coach of Plymouth or Brighton or Brentford or anyone next week. You have to have qualifications there. So um, it's, yeah, it's standards-based essentially where in order to have a club license or the ability to, to be a coach in, in this league, then you have to have certain qualifications. And do you guys manage that education process was that externally? That's Canada soccer, you know, so we that's that's much like the FA would manage it in the UK, even though it's the Premier League or whoever else that are 
requiring it it's our relationship with canada soccer so um we can help with certain things like for example like i said about this education day i did canada soccer doesn't currently have any licensing in analysis or recruitment or, or whatever else like the periphery licensing and that's where we kind of fill the gaps as best we can uh you know eventually maybe we'd work with them on building out those licenses and and try and build a partnership there but uh, COVID derailed a lot of those plans as well, which we're trying to get back on track now. And how much kickback have you had around individuals going to college? Obviously, I know the college system in in the states and North America is massive, and um, it's one big money for colleges and now potentially athletes with the nil rewards and stuff. But also in terms of, I think, the stigma of going to like a UCLA or going to a Stanford—that's quite big for the family involved the player involved so how is that challenging you guys in terms of keeping on to those players within this pathway yeah um it's a really good question and it's actually a, a bit of a philosophical question as well um, you know unlike unlike the uk a college degree from a good school in the us or canada is worth like potentially hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to someone over their lifetime um the reality is there's some players that it makes more sense to go to college than to stay in our league at the moment. And although we'd like to keep as many as possible, it's really hard to tell someone to turn down an Ivy League full ride scholarship that's going to kind of get them in at Harvard or Stanford or somewhere to play in the CPL or to play in the USL or even the MLS. You know, there's some there's some people that turn down MLS opportunities to go and do, do other things. Uh, for others... It makes more sense, especially if they're a really bright young talent that's almost certainly going to be a career pro. Then I think the best environment to play is a professional environment. So it's a case by case basis. There's certainly not a, a one size fits all solution where you should not go to college or you should definitely go to college. You know, it's a it's about each individual. Um, we've got a really unique partnership with the college system here in Canada, where you can actually go to college in Canada and still play in our league as a pro, um, which you can't currently do in the US. Um, so that's kind of like, like a little bit of an advantage we've got here in a model that a few other people are trying to adopt. Um, so it's a really interesting relationship. Yeah, no, that seems like quite a unique selling point, being able to do that. I know obviously the Barcelona model, they have that, when some of the boys are able to do work out the Barcelona University whilst also playing and they, they've encouraged that. So I think that's quite a unique space and way of obviously selling to the boys that if rather than going to an average school out there maybe go here and play but like you said that those top top ones it might make sense for you to go and make that jump and we're, we're happy with that yeah and that's where you know i think mls has got a a partnership with an online school which is not obviously it's not ideal you know online school is online school but um there's other ways to do this and like you said if you're if you're a college in the local area in toronto or whatever and you're a, a, a cpl club in toronto you don't need to go to college and play for them if you're good enough to play in the cpl maybe you can come and play here and then enroll in classes you know in the evenings or off season or whatever it is and kind of have the best of both worlds so like i said it's it's down to each each individual player's personal situation like some are more capable of kind of tackling both things at once and some might need to be a full-time student in order to to graduate so it all depends really 
Yeah, no, I like. I really like that model. Uh, it's one selfishly I've been through myself, and think that it helped in terms of having that degree space and stuff. And think of you know your your relative age effect and how it might be able to scoop up some of those players that need a bit more time to mature in their bodies and mind. I think that's a, a really good space to do it. Um, yeah. Looking at it from a, I guess, personal perspective for you now and kind of shifting focus a little bit. Obviously, I know when we spoke, you were very busy kind of setting up some some personal stuff. Um, I believe the company is Coach Tech. Please correct me if I'm wrong. But you just want to explain kind of what you've done in that space and why you've created it and what that looks like. Yeah, so it's actually a really good opportunity, I guess, for me to, to talk about this the kind of new project I'm, I'm working on outside of my my role with CPL. Uh, yeah, when I was uh, in when I was the head of analysis and recruitment at Houston, I was almost daily, you know, weekly hit up in my my DMs for lack of a better phrase in Twitter and stuff like that with people saying I want to do your job, how do I get into the industry, you know, and I, I saw a huge need there. There was very, very little analysis education. There's a million Twitter analysts who, you know, blog and, and try and do things online to build their profile. But there's very little formal education other than really a university degree in performance analysis, which comes at a huge cost to most people. Um, so I saw the need for maybe something a little bit in between. So I built Coach Tech, which is uh, essentially a platform that people can take courses in opposition analysis, video analysis, uh, stuff like that. Um, and actually, I'm just about to close the whole thing down. Uh, but for a good reason, um, we are relaunching. And when I say we, it's no longer me kind of running an online business anymore. Um, there's a group of prominent analysts, coach analysts, people like that, that are going to form the Association of Professional Football Analysis. So it's going to be a much more formal body representing analysis and analysts around the world. So if you think of the MLA for managers or the Association of Sporting Directors or the PFSA for scouting, everyone has their, you know, a body that represents them in their industry. Currently, there is nothing like that for analysts. So uh, there's nothing out there representing recruitment analysts, data analysts, uh, traditional performance analysis nothing um everyone's kind of on their own in a little bit of a silo so we're going to form uh, like i said a much more formal body that kind of brings it all together there's going to be some education uh some you know mentorship career progression uh philanthropy we're going to give away uh, education to underrepresented groups minorities things like that we're going to donate to common goals so really just trying to kind of bring the industry together for the greater good for lack of a better term so i'm really excited about getting that off the ground i'll be honest you panicked me then when you said it close it down i thought oh no <laughs> i brought up with a sore subject but yeah i'm glad to hear that's moving into a, a really good space and like you said i think that what well, you can talk first-hand experience how prominent performance analysis is in top level academies or sport now it seems like you can't move for having those people there to support the coaches or be with the coaches or be with the players and, and recruitment. Like you said, it, it seems like a real focus point for a lot of people, making sure that they've got that department as they need it. Yeah, I think there's a there's a couple of things, you know, which we've transitioned away from the analyst being the IT support person at a club that can fix a coach's emails or, you know, whatever else. And I've been there, you know, I, I literally in 
2012 was there in that position. You know, I was running errands for the head coach. I'd literally asked one time to drop his kids off at the, the shopping mall, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, you, you really were kind of the errand boy at the club. And anytime someone downloaded a virus, it was you that had to try and clean up his laptop and stuff. Uh, and, you know, now you're, you know, a lot of places, there's these coach analyst hybrids. You're really a true part of the process. Uh, but with that, I don't really feel like, um, certainly the pay is an issue in the industry. Unpaid internships are a huge problem. Uh, there's thousands of graduates with a degree that have got no place to go. Uh, most clubs have got three or four unpaid interns, uh, which again, some clubs are now kind of battling against that and starting to, um, to subsidize their study and stuff, which is great. But this is all things like, at, at no point is anyone looking to unionize and do, you know, go on strike and do all stuff like this. But, you know, one of the people we're bringing on board is Carl Edwards, who works at Rotherham. He, uh, he was kind of the head of an anonymous survey amongst analysts at the 92 football clubs this year, looking at hours of work, infrastructure, pay, stuff like this, which got distributed to everyone. So everyone had an idea of where they sat in the industry. Um, and this is all part of it. But then, you know, on the other hand, there's thousands of people out there that are desperate for a chance at a club. And other than a blog or some videos they put on Twitter, which get taken down by the Twitter police, they've got no way of proving that they're capable of doing this work. Uh, and they can't afford a degree. They can't afford to wait four years to get through university or three years. So how do they do this? So some sort of accreditation through a more recognized body in analysis, I think is is needed and this will be a, a part of it and then the cpd for regular coaches you know like who better to learn how to objectively analyze games do video analysis you know maybe tie some data in than from the analyst himself that work in clubs so building some courses um designed to kind of bridge the gap between coaching and analysis i think is a much needed thing in the industry no, it sounds really exciting as you say kind of that professionalized nature of it and moving to a spot where you know, people can put it on a CV or when they go to job interviews and stuff, you know, to say, well, I've been through this, been through that, this is what I've learned, already have access to, I think will, will definitely help. So, yeah, re really exciting space. I'm conscious we're at the time we're allotted for this. I've got one last question, which um, might be difficult. Take this as you will. Who's the most um, inspirational person you've worked with or seen working and why? It's a very good question. Um, inspirational person I've worked with, uh, I would say George Kelnovach at the University of Virginia, um, purely because when he took me on, I was the first, I, I believe I was the first ever full-time analyst in college football over here. So for someone to have the foresight to hire someone in 2013, back then when some pro clubs didn't have one, um, was great. But then his willingness to embrace my insights, to make me a part of the staff, to value me, give me an environment where I could grow and develop. Um, it truly changed the course of my career and my life. Um, and I think it takes a pretty special person who's coached at a World Cup and been in a World Cup quarterfinal on the sidelines to hire a, a relatively unknown analyst and then have him knock on the door and say, we're planning a session on this today, but actually I think the problem in our team is that and then be willing to kind of rewrite the session and trust him. That was an environment and a culture that I'll never forget and a way that I try and work myself. So I've worked with some incredible 
coaches and, and operators in professional football. But in terms of the influence they've had on my life, I think George would have to be probably the most inspirational person. No, I think a really good answer. And as you said, that forward thinking and humbleness to say, actually, yeah, let's let's give it a go. And we'll kind of see what happens at the back end of it. It's brilliant. But I know we haven't touched on any of your other roles or any of your previous experiences. So it might be one for another time. But listen, really, really appreciate your time. And hopefully we can catch up again soon. Yeah, no problem. And thanks for having me. I'd be more than happy to jump back on if you want to know the inner workings of an MLS recruitment department. Just, uh, just let me know. Perfect. Catch up with you again. Cheers, Oliver. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.